meet him to the econ twitter water cooler um try to get together here once a week with people from econ twitter various economists to talk about you know kind of whatever's on our minds uh the goal here is to a little bit reproduce the the water cooler that people might be missing from not being in the office and to bring the water cooler effect into into the digital space so thank you for joining me um for those who don't know Tim, um, Tim is I'm one of the most famous labor economists in the world, inventor of the famous Bartik instrument, um, chronicler of uh, economic development incentives, and we're going to talk about all these things. So let's 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 start, Tim. Let's talk about the Bartik instrument. What do you what do you see as the state of the instrument these days? I know there's been a lot of recent research talking about you know what you can or can't do identification wise with it. You know, have, have you taken a, a deep dive look into, you know, the, the cutting edge econometrics? I mean, it's such, it's such an incredibly influential paper. Um, you know, I've used it in my own research. It's been cited thousands and thousands of times. Where, where does the Bartik instrument stand today? Well, I think it's still in reasonable shape, although obviously you can shoot down any instrument. I mean, the basic critique of it, you know, for those of you who, well, I assume a lot of people know what it is in this conversation, but basically the idea is, is that you're, trying to proxy for uh, demand shocks to a, a local area's export-based industries by using the industry mix and national trends and demand by industry. You know, and the critique people have is that sometimes these local, you're trying to look at demand shocks and separate them out from supply shocks to a local labor market. And the critique some people have made is that maybe it's uh, correlated with certain supply-side variables at the local level. And that certainly is possible. I mean, you can shoot down any instrument. I mean, in the absence of random experiments, uh, there's always the possibility of some of these correlations. I, you know, I think some of the uh, concern has been exaggerated in the sense that, uh, yeah, there can be these correlations, so you should you should look at those uh, when you can. But I, I don't think in many cases, you know, especially when you're looking at cases where you're looking at demand shocks at different periods of time that differ for the same area, that differ over time, I just don't think that there are supply-side influences that bias it too seriously. I think some of it's exaggerated. I think that's basically right. So, you know, is the is the long and short of it that you got to worry a little bit cross-sectionally, but when you're looking at like, you know, the time varying component dominating the variation you're for? Yes, that's what I would say. If you're looking at just a single cross-sectional change, you know, let's say you're looking at uh, the industry mix and national growth by industry predicted change in employment for different areas from you know, uh, 2000 to 2019 or 1999 to 2019, say, uh, as like from business cycle peak to business cycle peak. Well, the problem is that areas that, obviously areas that were heavy in manufacturing would tend to do poor in that analysis. But maybe there are other things about the areas that were heavy in manufacturing that also would be, be supply shifters, you know, of various sorts. So, but if on the other hand, if you're looking at changes, year-to-year -year changes, and in some years, being in manufacturing is good. Some years, being in manufacturing is bad. You know, so it doesn't, it's not going to, supply shifters tend to be, well, okay. There Maybe there can be some supply shifters that are short-term, but a lot of supply shifters are more long-term. Demand shifters, uh, you know, move a lot, a lot from year to year. So, I, you know, I, I tend to think that if you can, if you're doing kind of panel data where you have a bunch of different demand stocks, you, you have less trouble. That makes sense to me. The origination of the Bartik instrument, it, it was in it was in a book, right? That's pretty unique for a yeah. major econometric sort of innovation to be in a book. Did you know when you were when you were writing the book that like this was a really great breakthrough that was going to be really useful widely? Or is this just like, you know, uh, here's a quick test I can throw in that's pretty cool too? Um well, no, I didn't know it would be just used so widely. I sure didn't know it would be called the Bardic Instrument because I didn't name it. Uh, <laughs> I'm willing to take it now, but I mean, you know, uh, uh, it, it wasn't something I named. Uh, I don't know who actually named it. But um, I knew it was an important thing, though. I mean, in the sense that I, I this came out of really some work I had done on regional economic development. And uh, also, actually, I was teaching undergraduate urban economics at, uh, at uh, the um, at Vanderbilt at the time, and I was trying to figure out, well, how do you distinguish between labor demand, labor supply shocks, and analyze local economists? Because they fundamentally have different impacts on wages and employment rates. I mean, so you, so you need to distinguish, otherwise you really can't say anything about local labor demand policy, for example. Um, so I knew it was important, and I, and I knew it was important to establish rigorously that it made sense as an instrument. And, uh, but I, I certainly didn't know it would take off the way it has. Uh, you know, I guess it's hard to find instruments and people are looking for them. And this one tends often to work. And by work, I mean, one, you tend to often be able to get statistically significant results. And second, a lot of times the estimates shift in the way you would expect that 
if you just look at how job growth affects wages or employment rates, uh, when you use the instrument, the, the, the estimates tend to move in the direction you would expect towards more of a demand side influence and less of a mixture of demand versus supply side. Yeah, that's an interesting note about, you know, sometimes people look at like an instrument, if it becomes too widely used, um, you know, then you sort to, um, like rainfall can only have so many, you know, mechanisms which can affect the economy. When you're talking about labor demand, it's sort of like the more this gets used, it, you know, it's, it's being tested against our priors in thousands and thousands of examples. And so like the more that the results are sort of consistent with a wide variety of priors that are testing a variety of theories, that sort of, it's at least supportive of the validity of the instrument, I think, in a way that's different from when the instrument gets used a lot in other contexts. Well, at least, I mean, I guess what I would say to people is if you don't, if you want to be a skeptical instrument, you can be skeptical about everything. I mean, uh, but at least it moves the estimates in, in the direction you would expect. And if you think there's some bias to it, yeah, well, sure, sure, you should look at that. And, and again, you know, we can't do, uh, we can't do randomized controlled trials where we assign different uh, metro areas to different demand shocks. Uh, so you have to use some kind of quasi-experimental method, and this is a method, and it gives estimates that see, often seem reasonable. And uh, if you're concerned about su the supply side varying things, then, then get in there and identify the supply side variables that you think might uh, be biasing things and try to control for Was the Was the instrument, did this come before or after Card's, oh, sh his immigration shift share? Was yours the first shift share, or did it, it was it well, not the first? Well, shift share has existed for a very long time. I mean, uh, uh, you know, shift share, I don't know when it goes back to originally. I mean, Walter Isard in the 1950s, I'm not really sure who invented shift share. So, you know, I didn't invent that way of decomposing an economy. My contribution was to point out that even though you're using all the industries, that it's really being driven by the industry whose uh, uh, local area shares vary a lot from the national average. In other words, uh, the instrument is not driven by fast food restaurants because the fast food restaurant share of the local economy doesn't vary that much across the area. It's driven by auto, ma auto manufacturing, things like that, that vary a lot across areas where the, the, the share of that in total jobs will be very different in Detroit than it is in Boise, Idaho. That's interesting. I didn't know that there was a longer history of shift share. I guess it was sort of, uh, but after you and Card, there was certainly a huge escalation in the use of shift share. And I think I mean, that's my perception. At least I've never seen an actual like study of that, but well, in the use of shift share in, in, in economics. Well, no, well, it was used a lot by regional economists. You know, you have all these regional economic studies going back to the 1950s that use shift share, not to look at demand shocks. It was more like you were trying to figure out why an area was growing from it, from one time period to the other. And the question is, to what degree is it just due to national trends? And to what degree is it due to industries in the area growing faster than their national counterparts? And uh, I originally worked on a lot. I actually, I did a study of Tennessee's economic development back in the uh, 1980s. And, th and actually that project gave me the idea for the instrument because I, I was trying to figure out different ways of decomposing the, the share effect by industry. And one of the things that came out of that was that really this instrument is being driven by the export-based industries, which are industries who, by definition almost, if an export-based industry sells to a national market, its share of local employment is going to vary a lot across local areas. And uh, so those are the industries that drive the instrument. And it was that decomposition exercise I did in law in Tennessee's economy that led me to it in, in terms of the intellectual background to it. That's that's great. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's such an important uh, piece of basically a methodological history now. Does you know, your son, Alex, uh, is a, an economist now, a great economist in his own right. Does he ever, does he ever complain to you at dinner? Like dad, now I can't have the Bartik instrument. You got there first. There's, there can't be an Alex. Bartik oh, instrument. well, Alex is great. And Alex is doing his own research and he has a lot of ideas and is a very high energy person and is doing some really interesting, interesting research in labor economics. Uh, so yeah, I, Alex has no problem having his own identity. Uh, <laughs> but I, I do think uh, he probably wants to avoid using the Bartik instrument. That's right. <laughs> Unfortunately, even in, in cases where it would be useful. That's right. They, I think the reviewer might question his uh, uh, his, his bias about the instrument, his dad's instrument. But uh, yeah. I, high energy makes absolute sense based on uh, you know his his output is really impressive. I, you know, I do a lot of work in, in the remote workspace, and Alex and, uh, has been all over this this literature and a bunch of teams. So um, it's been really great watching you know his his career. Yeah. Um, let, let me ask, let's let's talk a little bit about economic development because this is a um, you know a really big area of research for you. Um, 
where do you take the 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 debate on incentives uh, today? What's your read of like, you know, it, obviously it's it's got a bad reputation among policymakers and economists. I think at this point, do we have any data that its use in reality is slowing? Uh, no, I don't think it is. I think what we're in is a current kind of uh, equilibrium, which I would describe as follows: that essentially, since maybe two thousand or so, the overall volume of incentives in the U.S. has stayed roughly the same, with some states that were low in incentives getting a little more aggressive, some states that were high maybe cutting back. And what you see is a pattern where, you know, a governor, new governor might come in and decide, well, you know, this is crazy. We're doing all this money. Let's cut this down some. And then uh, the state maybe uh, loses out on some projects and all of a sudden there's a call to do something. And the easiest thing to do is to hand out cash. That That's action of incentives that that it's easy to hand out cash. It's harder to set up uh, research parks or set up a customized training program or, or, or expand the manufacturing extension program in, a, in an intelligent way. Those take longer or harder to explain to the media and to the public, whereas going after the big fish is always has the big political rewards. So what I see is a situation where the U.S. has a level of incentives that uh, I figure it's maybe four or five times what's typical in the European Union. Um, on average, and uh, you know, you still see common incentives that are fifty thousand job, a hundred thousand per job. I mean, the recent uh, the Ford locations in Kentucky and Tennessee. Kentucky offered about fifty thousand per job, and Tennessee about a hundred thousand per job. So you see those kind of deals going on all the time, and I don't see it really okay. I mean, maybe at the state and local level, over time, there will be some moderation that people keep on arguing about it and lobbying for it, but I really don't think it will really be restrained unless the federal government decides that we want to adopt rules similar to the European Union to restrict the magnitude of such incentives, particularly in non-distressed areas, what the EU does. EU restricts the really big incentives to big companies and restricts them differentially based on the region distress. Bulgaria can do things that cannot be offered in Berlin or Paris, for example. Okay, on the federal level, is there even, and you know, neither of us are lawyers, so maybe this is outside of our scope of knowledge, but can, is there even the opportunity to do anything, give them cause? Can we really, can the federal government really interfere in the, or get in the way of incentives? Well, back in the day, there were legal arguments about this. Back in the 1990s, I participated in something that Minnesota Public Radio uh, ran along with the Minneapolis Fed on the economic war among the states. And as part of that, they brought in a number of lawyers who, uh, in fact, argue that under the Interstate Commerce Clause, Congress could restrict this. Uh, you know, now, I don't know whether the court would change its mind today. I mean, the, the argument is that the Congress has the right to regulate interstate commerce among the states. Uh, Congress can prevent states from living tariffs on each other. And, you know, the way the European Union views incentives, they're a uh, export subsidy. You know, so, you know, Congress could say, well, look, you can't have tariffs on products from other states. You also can't do an artificial subsidy. Uh, you know, if you didn't think you could simply outlaw it, you could regulate it in the sense of uh, you could tie their federal economic development or community development grants to your use of this. You could use the federal taxing power. I mean, this was proposed years ago by Art Rolnick at the Minneapolis Fed. Uh, you can provide you can provide extra federal tax on incentives. Now, my own view is you should probably do something like what the European Union does, where they don't outlaw incentives. They just limit the magnitude of them as a percentage of payroll or investment. With the uh, with the magnitude varying with, uh, as I said, the economic distress of the area, and they focus in on the really large companies. Because again, do you want the federal government getting into every uh, incentive that's offered to a company that's adding ten jobs, or do you want to focus on the the big fish cases where which is where the real money is? So yeah, there's also I think a like a general equilibrium argument to be made there that like one of the problems with the big companies is that you end up in a system where the like, big companies just pay lower taxes because they're better at extracting it, and so like you end up with this inefficiency where in effect you get a tax cut for big businesses like you know writ large, and if you could just reduce that and sort of equalize it a bit by getting rid of the biggest offenders and make it so that it, it's, you know, it's still done, but it's not like a, in practice a big business tax cut. That would at least help on some margins and be less well, wasteful. Well, well, yeah, that's a good point because there's a lot of evidence that the incentives, the discretionary incentives are far more generous to large companies. And uh, and then you see that happening all the time, that states have rules for getting incentives. But then when it comes to a Foxconn or the Ford cases in Kentucky and Tennessee, you have state legislative sessions, special sessions that adopt special rules just for this right. company, and they get a much more generous deal. 
Now, the EU, by the way, in their regulation of incentives, they see incentive regulation as part of antitrust policy. In addition to being uh, so, so part of what they see is they're trying to prevent uh, member states of the EU from uh, tilting the playing field in favor of the largest companies, and that's why their regulation is actually stricter on the large on the large deals. And I think that makes sense too, because the large deals are the one that's the one where a governor can feel, oh, I'm going to get reelected because right. I got this big fish and I can I can run around the state saying I created jobs. The antitrust angle is a really interesting one, and I think that's kind of compelling because I do think that. Uh, the thing that makes me sort of pessimistic absent some change like that is that I do think from a, you know, sort of a, a, a tie bout choice framework, if you considered, consider, you know, thinking through like places as like, imagine they were little corporations, right? Like every community is a corporation. So you sort of wave away any, you know, public choice problems and just assume they're all acting in self full, full self-interest, you know, in, in real competition in, in product markets, it's very, very common to find discounts for the largest buyers, right? Like that's just like quantity discounts are a widespread phenomenon and it would not be surprising. In fact, you might almost expect that the largest companies via tie bout competition be able to extract lower taxes. And so like, you know, we can make this case that in practice, a lot of politicians end up overpaying and that like they, uh, you know, for informational reasons or whatever they overestimate the value or maybe it's like um, public choice problems they're giving these tax cuts or voter misinformation. Like there's room for theories about why you would get it wrong. But I think at a first, you know, first glance there, it's, it's almost like rational in some sense in a bad way, because like that's got negative bring consequences, obviously, but like the rationality of it, I think makes is going to make it hard to stop it just by appealing to policymakers. Well, yeah, because, that? no, I agree with that. I think I think that it's hard also because not only the economy is a skill argument, which I've heard at state economic development people make to me that they'd rather it's easier to negotiate one big deal than you know fifty small deals, uh, and and I understand that. Although of course you also can have a rules based tax system where if you want to have an investment tax credit, you can do that too. But the uh, the the other point politically, there's a big reason why you'd want to give uh, you'd want to do the big fish. I mean. Look, I get reporters call me all the time about Foxconn or Ford or things like that or, or, or Amazon headquarters, too. Uh, I don't know if I've ever had a reporter call me up and ask me about uh, uh, I'm doing a story on the manufacturing extension partnership program in my state. And uh, I'd like to hear your thoughts on that, uh, you know, or, or the small business development center in my state. I want to see how well they run or the customized job training program in my state. Uh, it, it's just harder to sell stories about. Uh, lots of smaller companies trying to expand and, and services to try to help them expand. And so, you know, politicians respond. I mean, I can like development sense large companies are politically popular. They win governor's votes. And, um, you know, I think it's uh, it, it's hard for people to avoid overbidding. And the fact that people don't do it rationally, I think you can see that in the sense that we don't see that states that are more distressed offer larger incentives necessarily. And within states, we often see states hand these out everywhere in the state. There's not a huge amount of targeting done at the state level. I mean, you just don't see them uh, provide much larger incentives in Detroit than they do in Grand Rapids or, or, or Traverse City, pick my home state, or, or any state, really. I mean, you just don't see it. Let's talk about these sort of alternatives then, the manufacturing extension, um, you know, the cost of business services. Uh, your research, the conclusion is that these things do tend to work, right? Like these are a recipe for increasing manufacturing employment and state exports. Is that right? Yeah, I think they work and I think they're cheaper per dollar incentives. I don't think they automatically work. I, I don't think in the sense that I think if you're doing a customized job training program, manufacturing extension program, and you run in a lousy way, you, you know, you're, you're not right. providing the training that's very useful or the, the, the advice you're giving smaller or medium-sized manufacturers is lousy advice. Obviously, that's not going to do anything. But I think when they're well run, and I think a lot of them are well run, I think it can be a more cost-effective way of creating jobs. And then in the case of customized job training, it also, to some extent, gets um, the uh, local residents, particularly those who are unemployed or under, underemployed, into the hiring pool, which I think is important as well. In other words, in debating economic development, we need to not only talk about how we create jobs in a cost-effective way, but also talk about how do we translate that into better labor market outcomes for a broad range of people. What is the argument for concentrating these on manufacturers? You know, the manufacturing extension partnerships, you know, there's tends to be a lot of focus on, you know, how do we, 
you know, expand manufacturing locally? What's what's the argument for focusing on that industry or segment, or, or is there one? I think there are two arguments, uh, and, and neither one would apply. You would just want to focus on manufacturing. Uh, the one would be that you have higher multipliers there than you do in some other sectors. You know, and you you have that because uh, manufacturing, at least certain types of manufacturing, advanced manufacturing has extensive networks of suppliers. You know, in autos, we talk about second tier, third tier suppliers, et cetera. And so that results in higher multiplier effects. Uh, and so when you incentivize one firm potentially, or, or for that matter, provide manufacturing extension help to help them expand, that leads to spinoff effects on other firms. Uh, the other reason is, is that not all manufacturers, again, but uh, many of them, are providing the so-called uh, middle-range jobs that you know people like David Outer or Harry Holzer have talked about. You know that that uh, you know there are these jobs that are really very high wage that may have high credential requirements, and there are jobs that are really low wage have low credential requirements. Uh, you know you need some middle jobs that uh, maybe someone without a college degree can get that pay somewhat decently. Now that's not exclusive to manufacturing. There are other mid-range jobs. You can imagine uh, jobs at certain business support services that might pay well and have modest educational credential requirements. So, you know, I think that, you know, in, in general, of course, you want to focus on export-based businesses, which in regional economics jargon means firms that sell outside the state. You do not want to focus on firms. I mean, you don't want to be trying to subsidize, uh, you know, trying to encourage one restaurant to expand your local economy and drive another out of business. Uh, you're, you're not really uh, increasing the overall jobs in your local economy by doing that. So when I think about those factors and those criteria, these are some of the things that bring me to the conclusion that, you know, remote work should be more at the top of the addition among economic development researchers and coordinators now, because I feel like, you know, export-based business, like, you know, that's a check. You mentioned business support services. You know, that's a lot of remote work. Um, higher multipliers. Um, obviously, you don't have the same sort of supply chain factors there. But to the extent that you get, you know, mid-level workers, but also more skilled workers, I think that, you know, Moretti's research shows that the strong multipliers from the higher skilled people in the community, even if you think that only operates through, you know, consumer um, spending channels, I do think that that's important. So uh, would you, do you agree with that, that, you know, that, you know, remote work deserves to be considered uh, alongside, you know, manufacturing as like a top tier priority at this point now? Well, I, I guess I, I think the jury still out is what I would say. I mean, I was, I'm open to the possibility that what you're saying is right. I'm also open to the possibility that the benefit cost analysis wouldn't work out quite that favorably. In other words, and I, and I guess what I think we haven't yet established, I mean, okay, so I mean, what are we debating here? We're debating public policies to encourage remote work, which includes some of these cash uh, grants that people have given, or uh, as well as other policies that might encourage remote work. And the question is how that works out. You wouldn't think remote work would have the same multiplier as manufacturing. So it's going to be lower than manufacturing because you're not going to have second and third tier supply. A remote worker is an export-based industry. I mean, they're bringing in dollars from outside the, the local area, but they probably don't have tiers of suppliers. Maybe they go out and buy some printer paper, I don't know, in the local right. economy. But you know, it's not like an it's not like autos where there's all these tiers of suppliers. And but you will have multiplier effects. And like you're saying, you might potentially, if the person later on decides to enter the local labor pool, they enrich the local labor pool. Now the question is, in going after remote work, is the strategy of okay again? It's like it's like incentives. The easiest thing to do is to offer cash. Is that the right thing to do? You know, because you know there's going to be some deadweight loss. You offer cash. Some of the people you offer cash to would have moved in there anyway. So that's just a pure cost. You know, and then the question is, what are the spillover effects? I mean, the reason why local residents might want to do this is they, the spillover benefits have to exceed the cost, the net cost. And that, that's the issue. I do not, I have not yet seen a serious benefit cost analysis that asks for some of these programs that different local areas have. What would the magnitude of the induced migration have to be to, in terms of social benefits, to justify the cost? And, and that, that's actually an interesting issue that maybe I'll get around to studying sometime because I think it's an important issue. A couple of things in response. So one, I think that, you know, to, to start, we shouldn't jump, you know, and considering remote workers deserve to be sort of considered alongside manufacturing, we shouldn't jump right to whether benefits make sense, because that's really sort of a higher bar. Because as we say, in manufacturing, cash benefits often don't make sense, but yet we still place manufacturing sort of 
um, in a lot of focus in terms of economic development and what right. we do. So I would say like, you know, a, a big missing, missing part of the discussion is like, what is the manufacturing extension services? What are the labor force services that we can provide for remote work to encourage remote work? So rather than like, I agree that, you know, the, the first tendency for communities has been to sort of grab for the incentives. But to me, that's sort of like a missing message from economic development experts and policymakers. Like, look, we need to be examining the, these things that work for manufacturing. Like, that's the kind of class of solutions we need to be thinking about and talking about for remote workers so the communities don't feel that their only lever is the incentives. Right. Well, I think the thing is, the reason I jumped to the cash, and I'm, you know, is partly because I do think that once people decide there's a problem or, or uh, a lot of times the easiest thing to do is to throw cash at it. Right. And because uh, you're doing something, right? You're doing something, you're doing something right away. You have a program. It, it gets headlines in the local newspaper. It uh, attracts attention. You're doing something about the local economy. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, a better issue is if you're trying to encourage remote work, what actually kind of infrastructure amenities do you need to do that? Now, you know, uh, you know I'm not, I don't think I have any, you probably have better ideas on this than I do on, on what that would be. It, it involves things like broadband, involves local amenities, involves, uh, a variety of things uh, that might attract people to a local area. And then the advantage of working on those things is that uh, those also have benefits for local residents directly. So uh, enable local residents to participate more in, uh, in their global economy and, and also uh, enjoy better amenities. The amenities are definitely part of it. And I think that those have been some of the discussion. Certainly broadband is brought up, but I do think we, you know, it, sort of think about how we approach traditional incentives rhetorically as policy researchers. We don't simply argue, at least in my writing, I haven't, I don't think in your writing you do. I think the vast majority of people who write about incentives, they don't simply focus on what not to do, but they focus on what to do. And I think that the, the, the case for, you know, extension services and business services in manufacturing is as strong as it is in remote work. And, you know, it's just sort of like this big missing area of the discussion. Like how do we, how do we create more proactive solutions for local communities? And I, I can tell you that they want them. They're interested in them. And it's sort of like, I guess this is my appeal to like the policy researchers who are listening is like, we, we need to be thinking about this. You know, if we, um, you know, imagine Tim, if we were like at a place where we didn't have manufacturing extension services hadn't been invented yet. And like we, you know, you're out there trying to convince local policymakers and like none of those other options have been made yet. And you're out there trying to convince local policymakers to not do incentives, but you didn't have what to do. It would be a lot more difficult, right? Well, yeah. And I, that's what I've always tried to do with my work on economic development. I've always felt that, look, job creation is valuable. If all you're telling policymakers is don't do incentives, cash incentives, but they don't work, uh, you're not going to really get very far because they're going to say, well, wait a second, I got to do something to create jobs. What are you offering? Now, exactly. if you're, and with remote work, I mean, you raise a good point, which is you need to talk to people, okay, there is going to be some, okay, we can debate the, the amount. But, you know, I think it's safe to say there will be some increase, net increase from before the pandemic till when we're really post-pandemic, which who knows when that is now. But, uh, <laughs> but at some point we'll be mostly post this. Uh, 98%, 95% post-pandemic. Uh, maybe we'll never be 100%, but 95%. And I think there will be some increase in remote work from before to after. How much? Uh, you know, I think that employers right now in different industries are trying to work that out. They're trying to figure out, uh, uh, do we need people to come in once a week, once every eight weeks? Uh, do, do we not need people to come in at all? Or, or what's the deal here? And uh, that's going to determine a lot of what kind of economic development strategies people need to offer. I mean, if employers decide workers need to come in once a week, that creates one set of locational choices. If, if employers say, okay, we need to have a staff retreat once every eight weeks, that creates a different set of locational choices and, and will have quite different effects on local economic development. Yeah, I think that's certainly true that, you know, where the demand side lands is important for how much of an impact economic development needs to have. But it's also true that, you know, with it, you have supply and demand that are gonna matter. And I think the same way that extension services increase, you know, the reason why they're good is because they're, they're supply side focused and not just demand side focused. And so I think that there is a case to focus on the supply side. And, you know, I talk, I talk to a lot of people who are like, I want a remote work job, what should I do? And like, what are the opportunities? And, you know, there's a lot of 
especially if we're talking about, you know, entrepreneurs going into, you know, self-employment remote work, there's a lot of learning that needs to be done. Like, how do I find the work? You know, what kind of skills do I need? There's a whole, there's a huge, huge opening there for these types of services and how do we advise communities and colleges and how to partake in them? That's a good point because, and I always thought, for example, you know, with job training, I mean, you wanted to, ideally job training should be the broadly. So that, for example, I would think that the option of starting your own business could be part of training. And we do have some entrepreneurship training and to some extent, small business development centers try to do that. And, uh, you know, you also could imagine training and uh, becoming a remote worker. Uh, And I see nothing wrong with that. The question is uh, right now would be how many people actually have expertise and could provide such training. I mean, do we really have people who out there, who could, uh, you know, it, it, not just and not just nationally, but you know, around in different areas of the country, who could work with people in helping them get into this particular uh, type of job, uh, and things to do, things not to do, uh, and I, I think that's an important issue. I'm not sure we have sufficient supply of people who could provide appropriate training, but maybe I'm wrong about that. No, I I agree with that. I think it's like a, a massive area for. Like I said, like if we didn't have manufacturing extensive partnerships, like there'd be such pressure to create them um, because you need that you need that supply of information. You need those providers, that information. I think, you know, I think this is a policy issue of, uh, you know, equal importance to the the creation of that. And it it should be a focus. Um, I don't know where where, you know, whether that's a state or federal uh, issue. But I do think there's there's so much work to be done there and a lot of potential for struggling places especially in terms of like retaining college educated workers. I do think that, you know, we talked a little about the spillovers, um, you know, manufacturing has their supply chain multipliers, but I do mean capital multipliers are also extremely important consideration there. So I think given that potential and given what I think about the lack of information, uh, it should be a major area for research. Right. And I think you could imagine, you know, community colleges getting involved in this and helping. And particularly this would be applicable to areas that are, well, obviously they're remote and that are trying to retain their young people. And, uh, you know, and people, of course, some people will want to move to the big city and they'll do that. But other people may want to stay closer to home for a variety of reasons. And, you know, ideally, you know, you get into the debate about place-based policy. I mean, my view is that, you know, obviously we don't, we, we want people to be able to migrate away from their original hometown to some place that they feel maybe suits them better. But you also want people to be able to ideally stay home if they value the ties to their home community and home area highly. And you, you ideally would want both options to be available in a wide variety of places in this country. And uh, so to some extent, you know, I, when I, whenever I advocate for place-based policy, I always want to emphasize, I'm not saying that people should never migrate away from their home. I'm just saying that we, we would like to offer people opportunities to stay at home if that's what they prefer. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, it's expanding the choice set and making people feel like they don't have the choice they don't have to make the choice between their career and, you know, where they want to live, but they can sort of like make the decision about where they want to live in some sense, more separate from their career. Right. Uh, I, I do also want to put a plug in for, you know, the economic innovation group, all Tulsa remote did put out an economic impact study of remote work. So that's okay, the first, est- I'll, I'll, I'll send that over to you. Um, that's the first, I think estimate that's been done of it. Cause you know, Tulsa has their, was I think the first remote work program there. Let's open it up to some, to some questions from from listeners, Troy Troy Mix, um, uh, do you have a question for Tim? Yeah, a quick comment on the discussion on like remote work training is I had a chance to talk to people from Utah State University Extension, who had started really pre-pandemic a rural online initiative that is really aimed at getting people uh, remote jobs, um, and you know they they had success at kind of training them with the right skills from you know, digital skills to um, time management skills and then success in job placement. I think the jury's still out on, you know, longer run impacts uh, in Utah and beyond. And they kind of said a lot of people are trying to copy. And I think I would share the same opinion or thought that I'm not sure who's actually qualified to provide that training. So that's just a comment on like who might offer it. I think like extension services at universities make a lot of sense theoretically. Well, so far Um, I don't hear anything, so... Tim, you said yeah. you don't hear you don't hear anything. Oh, did you, did you not hear Troy's question? No, I did not hear it. Oh. it? <laughs> Troy was talking about um, a program in Utah. Um, it was called. Say it again, Troy. What was the program? I've, 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 I've the rural the rural online initiative, which is out of extension at Utah State University. So I was right. just making a comment that yeah, he seems to be muted from my perspective. Oh, okay, 
I, 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 I can hear him. He's talking about the rural uh, uh, remote initiative in Utah um, and how that, that comes out of a, a university there. And that that's sort of a, the university as a, um, you know, a potential provider of, of the sort of extension services that we can. Well, I certainly think that rural areas should be the areas that are most seriously looking at this, because the reality is we look at rural areas in the U.S. In some cases, you can imagine a tourism strategy. In some cases, you can imagine attracting some some types of manufacturing and whatever. In some cases, you consider improving infrastructure enough that you can become a suburb of a nearby area to some extent. But I think a lot of rural areas, when you actually talk about viable economic development strategies, uh, you know, sometimes there aren't a huge number of options, and one option could be uh, promoting remote work. So I would think that there's going to be initiatives in this area that will probably be rural areas that are looking for any option to encourage young people to stick around and stay home, that they will, uh, that, that those will be the areas that will probably be doing the uh, innovations in this area. Yeah, I think that's right. There's also, you know, it's interesting. I think we can think of co-working spaces as being sort of one of the uh, supply side policies that we could maybe encourage because especially in rural areas, you have such poor broadband communication. Obviously, we're going to be spending a lot of money trying to get people broadband access. But I think, you know, an alternative to getting broadband to everybody's home is just getting some broadband in the community and having a co-working space as a place that's wired up really well and, you know, can pull somewhere to go and give them some of those amenities and give them community. And I wouldn't be surprised to see more, you know, if we think of like the small town within the rural area as being sort of a nexus of remote work activity, I think we're going to see more efforts there. Well, and that, and that could be also a way of delivering support services and kind of peer advice. You know, it's a, you know, it's a way of information sharing and uh, beyond the formal training you might do in helping people work into this co-working space could provide informal networking among the participants where they learn from each other. So, yeah, I agree. Um, I'm going to invite Andrew Maddie to speak. Andrew is a friend and also was one of the writers of the theme song for our podcast. So, Andrew, do you have a question for Tim? Please don't embarrass me in front of Tim. <laughs> Yeah, you just kind of touched on my question there with the broadband. Um, you know, I've come up, I've seen a lot of people complaining about unable to watch this new Get Back documentary. And I guess that's older set of population that I've seen uh, making comments about that online. But I read somewhere the 23%. Uh, you might have to repeat the question again, because for whatever reason, I can't hear him. Okay, I'll repeat the question when, when he's done. Sorry, go ahead, Andrew. Yeah, I was just, you know, you kind of touched on uh, some ideas for broadband in rural areas. But, uh, you know, I, I heard 23% of the country is still without broadband internet. It just seems like a pretty big obstacle there. Yeah, so Andrew pointed out that, um, you know, the set he heard is 23% of the country is without broadband internet. And that seems like it's going to be a, a big obstacle to these rural areas. So I think that certainly supports the kind of initiatives we're talking about. Well, yeah, and I don't know exactly. I, I have not seen yet a comparison of like the stuff in the infrastructure bill and whatever. Uh, how much does that match up with the um, the demand and how much of that? Obviously, it's not going to be enough to get and probably it's to get broadband to every uh, village in Alaska. But uh, what what percentage of the rural areas of the country will be able to get uh, high quality broadband from the infrastructure bill? And I, I have not seen us yet an analysis that that looked at that in detail. What what where would we get to in terms of coverage? That's a good question. You know, I, I think um, we're in a really interesting place in terms of broadband policy, because on the one hand, you have a massive increase in the need for broadband infrastructure, like this historical turning point remote work. It's like, OK, we got to get broadband to as many people as fast as we can. On the other hand, we're you know a couple years away, I think, from a pretty big revolution in supply of uh, broadband via you know, Google's Project Loon and uh, uh, Elon Musk's Starlink. There's a lot of increasing uh, opportunity, I think, there in terms of providing unwired version of broadband access. And so, you know, I think we do risk making sort of a mistake where we rush to lay out all this um, landline access that becomes kind of redundant pretty fast. But, you know, it's sort of a paradox because you don't want to spend $80 billion, whatever it is, on soon-to-be-redundant technology, but you also don't want to you know, stand still and wait for technology to hopefully deliver the broadband that's needed now. Right. I, I guess my view is that, that, you know, we should we should hedge our bets. But I mean, let, let's move ahead. And I find it difficult to believe that that broadband, that the uh, that the wired stuff would become totally redundant because of some of these alternatives. I would think that you would find that the wired stuff is still better for certain uh, stability of connections and that the other stuff maybe is. Uh, yeah, well, we'll see. Who knows? I mean, I, you know, I'm not an expert in the technology. 
you know, maybe someone can persuade me that we'll have something much better that's unwired within three years. But, uh, you know, I think we need to move ahead with what we know now and then later on uh, make invest- different investments if that proves to be the what makes sense given the technology. Before we wrap up here, Tim, I want to ask you a couple questions about your mother, who listeners may or may not know. Gene Bartik was a, a very famous programmer, uh, worked on the ENIAC one and others as well, right, on some of the very first um, computers that ever existed. I wanted to ask you, Tim, did your mom ever say when she was working on these and whether, you know, what was her sense of the history that she was doing this? Did, did she, did it feel like it was, that she was like on the cutting edge of, you know, something that was really important happened? Did she have a sense of how important the work was? Oh, yes, she did. She definitely did. I mean, uh, she always said that, that she knew this was really important. Uh, I mean, she originally came to Philadelphia. She came from rural Missouri uh, to Philadelphia because she wanted to see the world. And she was originally hired as a computer at um, at Penn, uh, working with Aberdeen Proving Grounds, and they were doing ballistics tables. But then she discovered, heard about this ANIAC project, which was funded by the U.S. Army. Interesting example of uh, military industrial policy. And they were funding the development of an electronic computer with the ostensible purpose of simply doing ballistics tables faster. But the Pentagon, I mean, the the, uh, the Army knew very well that this had great economic applications for U.S. competitiveness. So there were other purposes beyond just being able to aim artillery better. Uh, and, uh, you know, Press Eckert and John Mockley, who were the uh, the engineers who developed it at the Moore School at Penn, uh, my mom thought they were just brilliant people and I uh, worked for them and uh, – she thought it was a highly creative environment, and they all knew they were pushing back uh, uh, frontiers. And from the very beginning, ENIAC was very involved in some cutting-edge calculations. I mean, uh, some of military applications, uh, like they did calculations for designing the uh, hydrogen bomb. Uh, you know, but uh, and then people started using it for all kinds of scientific purposes, and then that led to the modern computer industry. So yeah, she knew it was really important and was proud to be part of it, and. Uh, Proud to be one of all the six first six computer programmers on ENIAC were women. So people don't know that. At the time, people, it's interesting that women were allowed to do this uh, uh, in an interesting sociological phenomenon. There's so many fascinating aspects to me of the story of, you know, the origins of Silicon Valley that have, you know, that touch on economic development themes. So, you know, for the example, for example, the fact that your mom came from Missouri is really, is really common for a lot of the originators in the tech industry that they came from the Midwest. And um, you just don't hear that as much anymore. It's, it's not the case where, like, you know, if you go through the big top executives in Silicon Valley firms and you do these interviews, um, you know, of the founders and stuff, like, it's not, they're not, they're not heartland folks like they used to be. And there's so many examples of that, you know, both of the HP guys and even at, uh, Mark Anderson. Um, and, you know, a lot of folks come from, you know, the, the very first computer at the University of Iowa. And, you know, there's a sort of this, classic heartland to big city pipeline because I think a lot of the those places had stronger state schools um, back in the early days of education uh, I guess that's I guess that's the driver there um, it, it sort of feels like um, a major change from today well I mean I don't know if it's some I mean I mean after all the, the ENIAC people Eckert and Mockley set up their own company but were not able to keep it independent because they couldn't get uh, the financing they needed they had to sell off so you know, they did have the problem. I, I still think this is true. A lot of what drives economic development that, you know, there's obviously a lot of capital in Silicon Valley searching around for projects. And it can be harder to sometimes find the kind of finance you need somewhere else. And that's true back in the day that, you know, uh, there wasn't anything like a venture capital industry back then. And so eventually, you know, one interesting question is why the ANIAC and then UNIVAC didn't take over the computer industry. Why did IBM take it over? Well, IBM was better positioned and better finance. So they were able to move in late, but to take over the early computer industry, uh, even though they were not, they, they did not invent the the ENIAC and that they were behind initially. But uh, you know, it was it was an important era, and it uh, it, it um, uh, you know, Eckert and Markley were willing to do something that other people thought was not possible to do with the technology at the time. I mean, they had a computer with twenty thousand vacuum tubes, and most people thought that wouldn't work because one of them would burn out every five seconds, and you'd, the the computer would go down. Yeah, so, and, and it did turn out that you know that was that 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 did become you know important limited to the vacuum tube computers is that they, you know it wasn't really a scalable solution. But well, it yeah, but they, makes an interesting point in history that like going taking that technology, pushing it to the absolute maximum point possible. 
well, they did it by over, you know, underpowering the vacuum tubes, and they also did it by making it very easy to replace. And so they could quickly replace a bank of vacuum tubes if they didn't, you know. So they had a variety of things they did to make the solution work. Um, they were engineers. They were practical people. I'd be like, well, Amalfi was a physicist, and Eckert was a uh, engineer, and they they were very smart folks. And uh, you know, they had a lot of good engineers working with them as well. And, and then they had the the programmers, the NEX six, the six women. Uh, and again, as I said, I think it's interesting how stereotypes change. At the time, in the early days of the computer industry, people used to talk about how computer programming was the ideal job for a woman. Uh, it was, that for a variety of reasons, it suited women. You can you could find magazine articles back from the 50s uh, talking about how this is, uh, that, that software programming is somehow a uh, uh, appropriate for women, you know, back in the gender stereotype days and uh you know it's kind of interesting given that the stereotype shifted over time to that this is like a male uh dominated uh profession and that's still something we need to overcome some of these these biases we have and uh and who who should be doing what kind of job yeah an another i think interesting question that gets raised is the nature of you know you mentioned the military funding of the ENIAC uh, the sort of the nature of how government should get involved with you know, technology and innovation. And you can sort of take two kind of opposing lessons from the our experience in the early days of the computer there. And that, you know, a, a lot of the early applications, the earliest applications were extremely outcomes based. It was just, you know, when you're looking to um, build a missile system, when you need to invent radar, when you need, you know, uh, ballistics computations, um, you know, you go, they, they were looking for practical solutions. They were looking for things to make it easier and better. So you it almost doesn't even look like, um, subsidies right it's just like this was this was the best way to get the job done but on the on the total opposite end of the spectrum you have something like you know arpanet which was you know government spending that they didn't really have much of an idea of the actual purpose for it or the point for it they just kind of wanted to to make it happen and it seemed like it was going to be the first step towards the future of computing but like it certainly wasn't the case that arpanet emerged from a government use case and i'm sort of wondering where where you think the net balance is today or you know do we need to the government be funding what they need or should they be funding what you know nobody really seems to need at the time well i think there's a i mean i think there's a balance i think the government should be certainly funding things they need and looking for dual uses where there may be spillover effects in the private sector and then you know i think the government can provide some funding for projects that may have more limited government use but may have very big spillovers and then of course we need you know i think there's a rationale for government funding of a variety of applied r d i mean uh you know, and I don't know if they're, I think it's more of an art in how you do that. I mean, I think in economics, you can sometimes, in economic theory, you can somehow clearly distinguish between things between R&D that's purely public and R&D that purely has private benefits. But in the real world, frequently, a lot of different projects have a mix of public and private benefits. And there's an art of drawing the line there. I mean, I do think that one point that's been made that, you know, uh, Simon Johnson and Jonathan Gruber made in their whole book about that that we really probably need to just up the amount of money that the U.S. government in general is spending on a wide variety of health R&D, many areas of technology R&D, and some of that's going to shade over into things that don't necessarily have government uses or uh, and they may have huge spillovers in the private sector. And then at some point you decide, well, no, the, the private sector can take over it at this point. And I don't, I think it's an art how you do that. I don't think it's, you can definitively set rules in advance. That's sort of a challenge, the fact that it's an art, because if you look at like, you know, the funding of the ARPANET and um, how that was done, and also like, you know, the initial funding of um, computer science departments all over the country by, by Licklider and Bob Taylor, it absolutely was like, it was not done as any sort of like rigorous criteria. They didn't have like, didn't, didn't look like modern grant making, you know, they didn't, they couldn't define here's what a impactful project looks like using some rubric. And then, you know, we'll figure out who fits that rubric. It was very much an art. It was very much uh, done by their own subjective judgment. And they had a ton of you know, leeway to do what they wanted with their yeah. budgets. It's sort of inconsistent with the way government works today, right? Well, maybe it should. Maybe, it, maybe we should go back to more of that. I, I can't remember who said this. It was there was recently some uh, study done of uh, uh, of leading scientists talking about uh, how much time they spend writing grants and how easy is it to get. I mean, in other words, basically, people are spending an incredible amount of time writing grants to get from NIH or NSF or whoever. And uh, they're not spending as much time doing the work. And then the grants tend to reward uh, 
doing the same thing you've already been doing and uh, and not necessarily new things. I mean, notoriously, I can't remember the name of the uh, the uh, unfortunately the woman scientist who I think it was at Penn, wasn't it? I think uh, who invented the mRNA vac- vaccination development method and whose lab ended up having to close down because they couldn't get funding because people thought we don't really need this tech this, this technology of producing vaccines. I mean, we need to be we need to be willing to have the government fund some pretty far out ideas. And inevitably, that's going to lead to stuff that back in the day, Bill Proxmire used to hand out, you know, the Golden Fleece Award. So I think obviously the government should be doing some blue sky research funding uh, because you only need a few a few big, big hits to make up for all the misses. Yeah, I mean, I think like big picture, the, the, the it's you take the venture capital sort of view of it and the big hits make up for those misses. But you do have to worry that like, you know there's sort of a public choice problem that might make that discretion not work like it used to. Like it, when you're doing it for the first time and the industries don't exist, you know, the government was able to do take a huge discretion and subjectivity in what they're spending on. But now that, you know, industry is more developed and, you know, lobbying is more sophisticated, you'd have to worry that you give someone this wide discretion that, the, you know, those original ARPA guys had. And the next thing you know, like the guy working the job is like a former Google executive and all the money is going to Google and Microsoft. And like yeah. it's not. Sort well, of- what can you say? I mean, I mean, governments are perfect. Human institutions are imperfect. You're going to make mistakes. Hopefully, uh, if you have some transparency in what's funded and how it's funded and you have a news media that hopefully still exists and is covering these things and identifying uh, uh, abuses, hopefully uh, you can prevent some of these uh, the political this becoming a political thing and hopefully you can have better judgment uh, of these things. But on the other hand, you don't want a rigid bureaucratic structure. You don't want NSF and NIH to be so bureaucratic that really innovative ideas don't get funded. And uh, we have to let that stuff happen and, and see if we can support it. Does the, 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 you know, everything that you've researched on the economic incentives at the local level, does that make you sort of pessimistic about that? Because it's sort of like the opposite conclusion where like local economic development incentives, we need sort of like strict rules and top down regulations and lots of like protection from public choice. But that's kind of like the opposite, it seems, of what we need from like federal science well, funding. Except I think here we're doing little, we're not funding. We're not just handing. I, I wouldn't advocate that the government just hand out to individual researchers and just say, here's some cash. I would advocate that they be more willing to fund uh, more adventurous proposals and that they they be willing to fund something that maybe is a far out idea that has a small chance of uh, working, but has uh, is maybe an adventurous idea. I think that's a little bit different. And then I think you can judge the whole portfolio by whether it works out. So, so again, I think it's a little bit different. You're not just handing out cash. You're, you're handing out cash and you're demanding that someone actually do the research and that at least some of them be hits. And I think, you know, if you hold a program accountable for producing a certain percentage of hits, there's an accountability procedure in there. Whereas in the case of economic development incentives, what's the accountability? I mean, basically, the the, uh, the economic development agencies always claim that in 100% of the cases, the firm would not have located there uh, but for the incentives. So where's the accountability? Yeah, that makes sense. We're at about an hour now. So um, I keep these at about an hour, but I, I appreciate you coming on and talking to me, Tim. And uh, it was really great hearing from you. And um, yeah, thanks. I appreciate the invitation and thanks to everyone for listening in. See you, Tim. Bye.